0: Last week, we identified three different groups. What were those groups, and how are they similar or dissimilar? What, was, what were the three groups we looked at last week, and how are they similar and dissimilar? We had the people who were following after Christ. Remember, there were large crowds that were following after Him, and there were evil spirits or demons, and then we looked at the disciples last of all. How did those three groups relate to each other? There was believers too. What's that?
1: Believers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there were believers, right? Yeah, and
1: they all knew God existed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, uh,
2: like, the evil spirits didn't know going
1: where the disciples did.
0: Yes. And the evil spirits, they actually knew more than the other people, right? Than the followers and even the disciples at this point, they knew that Jesus was a Christ, the Son of God. Um, they had this intimate knowledge of Him from the, their time before the Incarnation. But uh, they had not surrendered to Him, right? And yes, Daniel, as you pointed out, we had believers as well as being distinct from disciples because Uh, John 6, 66 says that there were some disciples who left Christ who didn't follow after him. Um, So there was that distinction as well. And we did end kind of abruptly last week. I wish I had a few more minutes to go over and talk through some of those things. So I did bring uh, an article from gotquestions.org on what is a carnal Christian. So if you guys want to grab those afterwards, you're definitely welcome to. I think it's a good article. Uh, You guys have any other thoughts or questions from last week? Again, we ended abruptly, and we were talking about the distinction between disciples and believers, and we'll have other opportunities to get into it, but I know there were a couple of questions last week afterwards. Not at this moment, huh? All right, that's good. Well, hopefully that article will address some of the questions that I had uh, just individually afterwards. And then what about uh, Mark 3, 7, and 8? What's important about those verses? It says that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Those seem like verses that we just kind of, have a tendency to glance over and read over quickly, but what did we see that was important in those verses? Do you remember? Mark 3, 7, and 8. Mm-hmm. How would you summarize those verses? A lot of people heard
2: about Him and wanted to come see what
0: was going on. Yeah, a lot of people, right?
2: wanted to see the miracles. See? I don't know how, much of it had, how many of them were seekers,
0: but
1: yep.
2: they wanted to see the miracles. Some of them just wanted to be fed. Yep. Give me a free meal. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: That's what John says in John 6, right? They were just looking for bread. But uh, if nothing else, we see that there's a lot of people that have heard about Christ. Right.
2: But the TikTok
3: phenomenon, somebody goes viral, everybody's jumping on to see what's going on.
0: Yep.
2: Main attraction on the seaside.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Everybody just looking to see what what's happening. There's something happening, and maybe I can get something out of it, right? Um, We also noted that these areas, these regions that these people were coming from to go to come and see Jesus, uh, they included Gentile regions as well. So up in the the northern area, uh, Syrophoenicia, Tyre and Sidon, uh, that's all Gentile, and we looked over and. Um, jumped into Matthew and looked at Matthew's account and how he went back and quoted Isaiah 42 prophesying that uh, the Messiah would have a, a ministry amongst the Gentiles and so we see this starting to happen that his, his uh, fame so to speak is being spread and people are learning about him and hearing about him even amongst the Gentiles and that's a fulfillment of prophecy. And I did go back, last week we talked about how big Israel was, and I didn't know, but I went back and looked and it's uh, 290 miles from north to south, and then at its widest points, 85 miles from east to west. So it's a a decent size, but a lot smaller than Utah. You can fit uh, five or so within Utah, I think. Maybe it's 10. Um, Yes, 10 that you can fit within the area, the landmass of Utah. So not super big. All right, and then um, how, so we did see that all of Israel was represented, including the the Gentile areas. And how has, has Mark highlighted the authority of Christ up until this point in his gospel? We've seen several things. What are some ways that we've seen Jesus' authority being highlighted Yeah. So he has authority over spiritual realm. What's that? And Yeah. 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 Teaching and preaching—that was his main focus, right? That's what he was there for. He's there to teach and preach. And even when people were saying, "Hey, come and come and heal us. There, uh, we have some sicknesses or whatever," uh, he'd say, "Well, no. I need to go and I need to teach. I need to preach right now." But he still did. Uh, cast out demons. He still did heal people of sickness and disease and he did so on the Sabbath, exercising uh, his authority over the Sabbath because he is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, we looked at how he summoned his disciples and called his disciples to himself, how he healed leprosy, how he endured temptation from Satan in the very beginning of his gospel, how he was affirmed by the Father as baptism. Uh, how he speaks as one having authority. The demons recognized him as the son of God. And then (coughs) last week, as we pointed out, he selected his 12 disciples with with perfect knowledge, knowing who it was that he was selecting and the purpose that he was selecting them for, even including uh, Judas Iscariot within the, the group of the 12, having full knowledge of the fact that he would betray him. So we see the authority of Christ all throughout Mark, and we're only three chapters in so far so we need to remember to look for that as we continue on uh let's start with <clears throat> verse 20. <clears throat> that's where we'll be picking up today so mark 3 verse 20 and 21 will somebody read those for us please Got it. <coughs> and he came home and the multitude
1: gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses.
0: All right. so just to kind of give us the scene a little bit. This is after his time at the sea. So back in verse 7 of chapter 3, he went out to the sea. And there was this great crowd. And he was trying to uh, teach to them amidst this. Great, great crowd. We said maybe thousands, tens of thousands of people. So he was there. Verse 13, he went off to pray and got away for a little bit, went up to the mountain. and That's where he selected his disciples. And now here in verse 20, he's returned home again. Um, and home, we'll remember from chapter 2, verse 1, is Capernaum. That's what was home based for Jesus. He went to Capernaum, operated out of there, and it was likely Peter's house that he was operating out of for home base, but he came home verse 20 and the crowd again gathered. So probably the same crowd that we were just talking about from all over the place. Um, they gathered to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And so he was, um, before he was prevent, prevented from even standing. That's why he had to get in the boat and go out. He couldn't even stand there and teach just normally because of the great, um, number of the crowd. And now he's not even being able to, to eat a meal because there are so many people crowding in around him like uh, a massive concert or uh, give a music illustration of Black Friday. Um, back in the day Black Friday because today's Black Friday is mostly online. I don't think it even computes. But he uh, was just being pressed in by all these people on every side who couldn't even take a break to eat. And uh, what does Jesus do? Of course he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? And uh, he's not going to put up with this, is he? So he sends them all away and tells somebody to bring him some food, right? No, that's not what, what he does at all, right? What does Jesus do? Why doesn't he do that? Cast them all away and say, you know what, it's time for me to eat. You guys need to get lost so I can have a sandwich. He told
2: the hunger in their soul the suffering servant.
0: Yeah, because he is a, a nice. suffering servant, right? That's... Yeah again Mark's, Mark's point that he's willing to suffer he loves us he has this compassion this desire for these people who he realizes have a, a, a need within themselves remind me again what does Mark 1045 say we've been trying to work on committing this to memory anybody have that down or at least a general gist of Mark 1045 I hear some pages turning <laughs> All right, Mark 10:45. Let's keep working on this one. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why He doesn't send them away. That's why He's willing to uh, go through this inconvenience of going without a meal. He doesn't make a big deal about it. He's just teaching, preaching. This is just normal for Him. Um, he's not focused on Himself and His own health, His own desires, His own wants or needs. Uh, he's just serving the people because that's what he came to do. Uh, Luke 19.10, right? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that was his primary goal, his primary desire. And so even though Jesus is king and he does have all authority, he is still the, the suffering servant and uh, wanted to, to bless these people uh, by preaching to them even when he was needing himself. But verse 21 uh, seems to be speaking of his family. It says that when his own people, different translations will use different words to translate that, that phrase. Um, Nasby says his own people, King James says his friends, but probably the best translation uh, is in the ESV or the NIV, talking about his family. So his, when his family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. And so later on, the text comes back and it's gonna talk about his family in verses 31 to 35, uh, which is one of the reasons for that. It's probably better to understand this as his family. This is one of those uh, Mark sandwiches, so to speak, where he starts off with one situation and he uh, kind of interrupts himself. He's gonna start talking about something else here in a moment, and then he'll come back and he'll pick up the issue of his family in verses 31 to 35. Uh, we'll see this here in a couple of weeks in chapter 5, he does it with Jairus remember Jairus comes up and says my, my daughter's sick, will you come and help me and as Jesus is on his way the the woman that's been hemorrhaging for 12 years comes up and touches the, the fringe of his cloak and then the story returns back to uh, Jairus, so I think that's what we have going on here, one of these uh, Markian sandwiches where he just kind of breaks and then he comes back to it and so his uh, Christ's family here um, hearing of his selfless service um, they initiate some sort of intervention they hear that he's not feeding himself that's what it says in verse 21 that when his family heard of this the fact that he couldn't even sit down for a meal they went out to take custody of him they went out to arrest him is what the word means for they were saying he has lost his senses they thought that Jesus had gone crazy and he was out there and uh, teaching all these people, just indulging in this newfound fame and glory. And his brothers, we know at this point, didn't recognize him as Lord. They thought he's he's nuts, and we need to get him and uh, bring him to safety so that he can sit down and have a food and take have some food and take care of himself. Um, they they didn't get it. They didn't see that uh, he was a suffering servant. They didn't see that he was the. The Lord of all creation, who had stepped into time so that he could teach and and minister to these people because there's something greater on the line. They just wanted to come in and uh, take custody of him. Uh, Britney Spears style, right? To uh, say, no, you can't go out, you can't do your thing, you're going to be captive and um, trying to help him take care of himself because poor Jesus couldn't figure out that he needed to eat, (laughs) sit down and eat, right? That was kind of their mentality. They thought that he was nuts. Uh, And we see this misunderstanding not only here, but elsewhere in Scripture. Um, See if we can get some people to look up these passages that um, these people have a a misunderstanding. They have a hard time understanding Jesus' humility and that he was there to serve others. that He wasn't there to to serve himself. And it's often misinterpreted, just like his family thought Jesus needs help. We need to come in and, and rescue him from himself. Does somebody have John 6, 15? I got that. All right, Amy.
1: Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. All
0: right, so that was their desire. They thought, this is a Messiah. We need to lift him up and make him king because they read that in their Old Testament. And I think partially to their credit, they thought, OK, well, this is a Messiah. This is king. Let's. Make him king and Jesus, knowing, Well, my hour is not yet come. That's not my father's plan. It's not time for that. He withdrew because they they didn't understand this aspect of his humility. What about Mark eight, thirty one through thirty-three? What's that say? I can get that. And he began to teach them
1: that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the
3: chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke
0: him. In the next verse, 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. All right. Uh, that's a pretty harsh rebuke, right? A, a good, deserved rebuke, because it came from Jesus. Obviously, it's deserved. Um, but... Even Peter, right after he confesses that you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God, he then
1: <laughs>
0: says this, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, once again, puts his foot in his mouth. Um, and Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. I have something that I'm, I'm to do. I'm to be uh, the, the suffering servant, right? And to express that at this time. And then Luke nineteen eleven. right after that verse, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What does Luke nineteen eleven say? Somebody got that one?
1: says, <clears throat> While they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately.
0: Alright, so again, the, the mindset was the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. Jesus is uh, ushering in this physical kingdom where he's going to reign. He's going to get rid of the Romans right now. Right. We've already talked about the Different, different aspects of the kingdom how the kingdom of God was at hand because the king was here in a, a spiritual sense but he says my kingdom is not all this world it's not time for that yet and they had a, a fundamental misunderstanding of that and it seems like his family had that same misunderstanding that's why they came in to rescue poor little Jesus right? because he needed their help so desperately mm-hmm. well as I said we're going to take a break from that uh, well Mark takes a break from his family and he moves on So let's look at verse 22. Mark 3.22 says that the scribes came down from Jerusalem and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And so now Mark doesn't make this explicit connection here. He doesn't spill it out in crown. But um, Mark seems to compare Jesus' family with the scribes, because he goes immediately from saying this family thought that he was nuts. They thought that he was crazy to saying. And then the scribes came and they thought that he was speaking on behalf of a demon, right? Uh, that he was um, possessed by Beelzebub, it says. And so it seems like Mark is drawing some kind of connection here between his family and these scribes who also reject Jesus' authority. Uh, Let's look over at Matthew 12. Uh, This is the the parallel passage. So let's flip over to Matthew 12. And we'll get a little bit more context here, starting in verse 22. Matthew says, about the same account, that a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. And that mute man spoke and saw... All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? You see Matthew's emphasis there on Jesus as king. Um, He's bringing these things out, whereas Mark didn't see fit to. Then verse 24 of Matthew 12 says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So this just adds a little bit more context, tells us why it is that uh, the the scribes thought. And here it says the Pharisees. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees thought that Jesus was doing this by the power of demons. And um, we see back here that it launches into um, these next verses back in Mark 3:23, and says that uh, he, Jesus, called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables saying, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand, and will not, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. And uh, Matthew added to his account that Jesus, hearing their thoughts, or knowing their thoughts, said these things. So Jesus is calling out their... Their thoughts. This presupposition that he is casting out demons by demons, and he is um, just highlighting the absurdity of the scribe's arguments. Uh, he is talking about how um, this this just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And he's not spelling it out in cram, or he is rather spelling it out in cram, um, saying, "Well, look, let's let's walk through this logically, right? Uh, a nation that's divided against itself. That's not stand. That's not something that is... Um, you, you can't go on living like that. A, a house that is divided against itself, that's not something that is actually viable. It's not a viable situation. Um, now let's apply this to Satan. If Satan is really divided against himself, do you think that's uh, a winning strategy for the, the evil one? This evil one who isn't some slum, right? He is uh, a fallen angel... Uh, He was the the greatest of the angels. He was wise and and brilliant, and he's not stupid, right? And Satan certainly knows that uh, if he's out there casting out demons against himself, that that's not going to work. It just doesn't make sense. This argument doesn't hold water at all. And it's interesting to to notice that the scribes, they don't come up and attack the fact that these miracles are actually happening, which is pretty... uh, interesting to take note of, because that's the world that we live in today, right? We live in a world that says, well, Jesus, you don't really believe that he actually walked under water, right? You don't believe that he actually rose from the dead, do you? Because that's not how we should understand the Bible. It's, It's obviously saying something else. That's the kind of arguments we run into today. But that's not what the scribes and the Pharisees were saying. They were acknowledging his miraculous works. They were acknowledging because they were there seeing this man who was possessed by a demon. He was mute and blind and now he's able to see and he's able to speak and, and hear and uh, it's undeniable. So they look at this supernatural miraculous work of Christ and instead of denying it, they ascribe it to Satan. They say, well that must be of of the work of Satan because obviously something took place. Something supernatural happened. We can't just dismiss it out of hand. But it says that Uh, they said that he was possessed by Beelzebul. Now, this word Beelzebul comes from Beelzebub. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1. It's talking about a a Philistine deity, um, Beelzebub. And (coughs) that that name Beelzebub was taken and just derisively changed to make fun of that name. That name means uh, Lord of high places or Lord of heavenly dwellings. And people took that name and they changed it to Beelzebul, which means Lord of the dung, just to make fun of Beelzebub. Or Lord of the dung, yeah? poop lord. Um, or Lord of the flies of the dung, the flies that congregate on the dung, Lord, lord of the dung, um, just to make fun of Beelzebub. And now they're ascribing this name, this power to, to Jesus, saying, well, you do this by the power by the power of Beelzebul. Um, and this isn't the first time that they've done this. They've done it several times. There's a, another seemingly parallel account in Luke 11, but this is a, a very similar interaction that takes place later on in Judea. This is taking place in Galilee, but later on in Judea, uh, Mark 11 says the same thing, that they said he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Uh, back in Matthew, Matthew 9.34 and Matthew 10.25, they both say that Jesus did this by the power of Beelzebub too. So, this is kind of a, a known, uh, accepted understanding of how Jesus was doing the things that he was doing. This um, theory had spread that he was doing this by the power of Beelzebub by this time. Yes?
2: That's not an uncommon thinking, though, of people that deny God. You know, this can't be of God, so there's got to be another answer. Yep. That's exactly where Darwin started our modern science is. There is no God. There's another answer. These guys are saying He's not God. So there's another answer. Absolutely. But it's it's a common strategy or argument or fallacy, whatever you want to call
0: it. Yeah, it's human nature, right? We suppress the truth and unrighteousness and God has given us over to that unrighteousness, right? In Romans 1, three times it says, verse 24, 26, 28, God has given us over to our sin because we suppress that truth, because what is known about God may be plain to us because He's made it plain to us. For since the beginning of the world, His eternal power, namely divine uh, power in, in creation, has been clearly seen in creation through what has been made so that we are without excuse, and yet we deny that. Even though God has placed an understanding of Himself within us, we suppress that truth. And he says, okay, well, you wanna suppress that truth, you're, you're gonna be relegated to calling me crazy, calling me nuts, uh, or saying that I'm demonic. And none of those are gonna be adequate responses to the, the King of Kings, to the Lord of glory. And we're gonna ultimately pay the price for that. But yeah, you're absolutely right, it's nothing new, nothing that is special about them or unique about them. We still do the same thing today.
1: Yeah. Said that the Beelzebul was the prince of the Philistines or, or a Philistine deity, uh-huh. but and then are like the people in Jesus' time just kind of scribing that to like the prince of demons now, or I just couldn't find like, the connection there.
0: Yeah, so uh, Beelzebub was the, the Philistine deity and <coughs> to to make fun of Beelzebub, they um, they changed the name to Beelzebul and yeah, ascribed that to uh, to Satan. It's a, a name talking about Satan or from the power of Satan. And they're saying that that's how Jesus is doing these things. They're ascribing that the power of God, that he is this miraculous feat that he accomplished in healing this man, uh, which we're told in... Matthew twelve twenty eight. he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now they're saying that he does this not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebub. So, not the Philistines challenging the name. The Jews changing the name of the Philistine
2: God. Right? Yes. So, so
1: the Jews recognize the Philistines' <laughs> God as being Satan.
0: Yes. They,
2: they made a direct correlation that their God is Satan.
0: Good. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. Well, let's look at verse 27. So, after Jesus points out their, their foolish thinking, verse 27 says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So, Considering the, the context, who is the strong man in, in verse 27? We see, I already threw it up there, Satan should be the considered the strong man because they're ascribing it to Satan. Um, his house, Satan's house, we can understand as the, the realm of sin or sickness and demons and, and death. These things that Jesus is coming in, He's disrupting. We've already seen up to this point the authority that Jesus has expressed over the, the house of Satan, over his realm. And then the, the possessions of Satan I think we should understand as uh, demons and as the people who are ensnared by demons and uh, sickness and death and disease. The, the people who are operating within satan's realm. Remember 2 Corinthians 4 4 says that, talks about the God of this world. And Ephesians 2.2 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Uh, by nature, we are children of wrath. We are under his domain. Uh, Jesus says as much in John 8 44. Remember when the, the scribes come to him and they say, well, or the Jews come to him and they say, We're children of our father Abraham. And he says, No, you're children of the devil. That's who your father is. Um, that's the domain that you live within. And Jesus here says um, that no one can enter the strong man's house, or no one can enter Satan's domain um, and plunder his property, that is to take these these demons and those who are under his possession, unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. And we do see that Jesus demonstrates his superiority over the strong man, over Satan and his ability to, to bind him. We've already referenced some of those things this morning in talking about his authority within this book. We see that he overcame Satan's temptation back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Right after his baptism, he was led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness, and Satan tempted him, and Jesus didn't succumb to that temptation. We see casting out of many demons all throughout these, these verses. Those verses on the top line are some verses we've already looked at that talk about Jesus casting out, Satan, casting out demons. And then that second line are verses that we haven't even got to yet that reference the same thing. Uh, will somebody just glance up and read Mark 3.15 for us? What does that verse say?
1: Uh, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in uh, their hearts about John, as to whether he might be
0: the Christ. Are you in Mark? Mark
1: 3.15? Oh, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's all good. That's the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> Is someone else that day makes no sense.
0: All right. Thanks, Leroy. So, uh, he sent out his apostles even to have authority to cast out demons or, or devils. It wasn't just Jesus having this authority, but he was able to take and delegate this authority even to his disciples. Just these lowly 12 fishermen and tax collectors. these, these nobodies really. And he says, yeah, go out and cast out those, those demons. Uh, that's absolute authority that Jesus has over these demons. And then we see uh, at the, the end of Mark, Mark 16.6, And the angel said, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been risen. He is not here. That is absolute authority over the the strong man, right? Jesus has power over disease. Jesus has power over demons. Jesus has power over death. And he demonstrates that in, in raising himself from the dead. Uh, to show his absolute authority even over Satan, even over the strong man. So he can go in and and plunder his house. He can go in and rescue these people who have been taken by this demonic activity. He has first established his authority over the strong man to be able to do so. Uh, He show that
2: that he cannot be destroyed
0: even by his physical death. Yes. Satan uh, bruised his heel, right? But... Jesus crushed his head and demonstrated his absolute power over, uh, again, disease, demons, and death. Yes, Sam? Do
3: you know off the top of your head if this would be one of the texts that uh, like, charismatics would point to with the whole like, binding of demons thing?
0: Yes. Yeah, they'll, they'll point to this. And even going on in the, the next couple of verses, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they would... Um, charismatics that is they would accuse us of blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying that uh, we don't embrace the, the miraculous sign gifts these radical, radical gifts of the Holy Spirit and that in doing so uh, we're blaspheming the Spirit because we're, we're not uh, speaking in tongues we're not working miraculously so yeah this is a, a favorite passage for charismatics any other thoughts or questions
2: i like to take them to the verse where I think we've already read it where it said, All that were sick came to, came to Jesus and he healed them all. Yeah. I've never seen a charismatic healer heal everybody that came to him. Yeah,
0: and those kind of healings, they can they're can nowhere can on par with what yeah, Jesus they can did. They can choose. Yeah.
2: And a matter of fact, if you go back and look, they do it all beforehand now, decide, choose who's
3: going to go up. Oh, I have one sense of uh, foot pain in the audience, but
0: he didn't sense my broken cancreas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bunch of hucksters, huh? All right, well, let's go on and look at the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is a, an interesting passage. Uh, let's read these verses 28 through 30. Uh, so after this, it says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, first of all, um, let's not lose sight of verse 28, because 28 is an awesome verse. And I think we can get distracted by 29 just wondering what does that mean, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We can overlook verse 28 that says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. That is an incredible verse. That's an, an all-encompassing verse, and we don't want to lose sight of that. Uh, it's like back in the Garden of Eden, when, in chapter 2, when God said, You can eat of all these trees, just not this one. And that's what we kind of seem to focus on, right? That, that one tree. But here, Jesus is saying, All these sins are forgiven you, and these blasphemies are forgiven forgiving you. That's pretty incredible to see this, this forgiveness. It's not just um, throwing a, a, a blanket over it, not just absolving the sin. It's not absolution, but it's actually forgiveness to acknowledge the sin and that Jesus not only acknowledged that sin, but He bore that sin Himself and offered forgiveness for all these different things, uh, including blasphemies that they utter. I think it's important that we define blasphemies. So the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church says that blasphemy is from blapto, which means to damage, and from famy, which means reputation. So to, to damage a reputation, to a speech, thought, or action manifesting contempt for God. That's what blasphemy is, to have these, these thoughts or this speech that speaks ill or uh, poorly against God. Erdman 's Bible dictionary says that the sin of consciously using that blasphemy is the sin of consciously using derogatory language about God, reviling, mocking, or slandering, and to think that these blasphemies can be forgiven to to realize that okay well that's that 's your old self, and the old has has gone, the new has come you 've taken off the old and put on the new that God has completely. Regenerated somebody and, and changed them so entirely as to be able to forgive their their blasphemous thoughts, all these sins that they speak against the Son, they shall be forgiven. That's pretty incredible. Um, let's look at. Hopefully, you're still in Matthew. If not, turn back to Matthew 12. Again, a, a parallel passage. Matthew 12, and starting in verse 30. It says that he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And so we see there that verse 31 uses the word blasphemy, anybody who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. And verse 32 uh, says very plainly, anybody who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So that's what blasphemy is, to speak this word against or to, to blaspheme. And particularly, it's the Holy Spirit that is in view here. And then in Matthew's account, it adds either in this age or in the age to come, it shall not be forgiven him. So this is a, a big deal, right? They're not only not going to be forgiven in this life, but in the, the next life as well. Steve.
2: So, people who take the God's name in vain, Lord's name in vain, I hear this everywhere, that's that's blasphemy against... Is that blasphemy against the Holy Ghost? Or, or is this a blasphemy that can be forgiven if they just... Get thinking right.
0: So that is absolutely blasphemy, right? Blasphemy against God and the Holy Spirit is God. However, this seems to be distinguished. The, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit seems to be distinguished against these other types of blasphemies, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, these other things that you speak of. So this is
2: blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yes. There's blasphemy against God and Jesus, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is that's the bad one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're all bad but yes that's the, the really bad one yeah um,
2: that's, the, that's the number one bad one.
0: yes that's the one that again verse Matthew twelve thirty two says it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come so you blaspheme blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and that's uh, a big deal that's eternally uh, big right <laughs> um, that's that's not going to be forgiven
1: yeah
0: and so that's where this, this question comes in. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Do you have something else? Go. Um, Logan. <laughs> <laughs> I said they're looking at you. What is your name? Were you raising your hand?
2: <laughs> yeah, so long. Don't a long to forget, Logan. I've been gone a while. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a blasphemy that uh,
1: a lot of people wouldn't
3: really think of. Um, they just say it. But then there would also be a blasphemy that would be more focused against the Holy Spirit. And, and they're trying to blaspheme God in His name. And, um, would that be a distinction?
0: Uh, yeah, there are lots of different interpretations and understandings about what is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is being said here. Uh, I think it's important that we don't isolate this text from the context, right? We have to always do that in Bible study. We have a a tendency to look at a verse, especially a verse that is alarming as this, and just take it and remove it from its context. We can't do that. We have to consider what has happened before this. What is Jesus saying in context? And so it's no coincidence that this verse is spoken on the heels of the scribe's accusation of Jesus. uh, That he was doing these things by the power of Satan. That he was possessed by Beelzebub and casting out these demons by the power of Beelzebub. When again Matthew twelve twenty-eight says that he did these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are taking and ascribing to Satan the works, the miraculous works that God the Son is doing by God the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, well that's from Satan. That is something that um, he can only do by the power of Satan. Again, they had attributed to Satan that which was from God. They had rejected the light that had been shown to them, that had been obviously and clearly shown to them. Um, and a lot of people will, will question and debate whether or not this sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is a sin that can be committed today uh, some people are are quick to jump over to hebrews and look at hebrews chapter 2 and 6 and 10 at these warning passages in hebrews and say that those who um who do these things uh cannot be renewed again to repentance um let me see if i can just read hebrews 6 real quick um and they who have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now go on to chapter 10 and uh, read similar things from these warning passages that the author of Hebrews is written to them. Um, let's see. Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? So it is possible to make that connection there um, but then again it's often argued and I tend to, to fall on this side of the fence at least for now that uh, this was a sin that was unique to that time period that they had the incarnate son of God there performing these miracles casting out demons in their sight and they were denouncing that power of the Holy Spirit. Not only denouncing it, but ascribing that power to Satan saying that he was doing these things by the power of Beelzebul. Uh, that is pretty intense stuff. And uh, I think that's what he is speaking of when he's speaking of this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But,
2: so basically
0: you're asking what's the unforgivable sin? Yes. I think it is to to uh, Ascribe to God or ascribe to Satan that which is from God, um, but here let me read a, a couple of quotes from you for you. Um, as I mentioned, some say it's miraculous sign gifts. We can write that off, right? And he's definitely not speaking against people like us who don't practice miraculous sign gifts. That is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, but the the Bible Knowledge Commentary says that it refers to an attitude, not an isolated act or utterance of defiant hostility toward God that rejects His saving power toward men, expressed in the Spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus. It is one's preference for darkness, even though he has been exposed to light. So that's kind of the the view of Hebrews, that this person has been exposed to light, they have tasted of uh, the, the redemption of God, they haven't fully eaten of that that redemption, but they've, they've had a taste. Maybe they've been a part of church for a little while. They profess to be a Christian. Um, it is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. Um, those who have been exposed to the light and yet have a preference for the darkness. Um, but again, I think that it's also likely that it was a sin that was relegated to that first century. Those who witnessed Jesus firsthand performing these miracles. Um, they were the ones in in my opinion, the only ones who are able to commit this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But I can't say dogmatically whether or not it can be committed today. It's just, it is debatable. What was that verse in Hebrews? Uh, there were a couple of them. There was Hebrews ten twenty-seven and Hebrews 6. It's like 4 or 5 somewhere in there. Uh, Sam, do you have something? I had something it was like 10 seconds ago, Sam.
1: <laughs>
0: Alright. Hebrews 6.6 6 talks about those who have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Amy. So,
2: recognizing Christ as Savior and Lord, those who do not recognize Christ as their Savior and Lord will not be saved. Yes. And that is the unpardonable sin. Is denying Christ, I mean, it kind of, yes. the Holy Spirit sh- reveals this to you, and you flat out deny
0: it. Yeah. yeah, and some will make that connection, just say, well, it's just flat out unbelief, and ultimately, unbelief is to deny the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think this might be a, a unique sin. This is more sin. specific, yeah. Yeah, Sam. So,
3: it seems like it's really difficult to make that distinction because we're like in a whole nother. we're not just talking like a sin that could be, you know, like oh, you've sinned, yeah, you've all sinned, um, Christ died for us because it seems like this this extension of forgiveness is given to about like everyone in this passage yep. except for this particular instance Yep. Um, so I find it kind of hard to say oh, it's just denying that You know, denying Christ is is um, Jesus is God because to that level, every sin is technically unpardonable in a sense. Yes. But to that same extent, though, still. Mm
0: -hmm. So, yeah, uh, a lot of people will equiv. They will equivocate. Is that no? They will. That, that is a word.
1: Make them equal.
0: Make them equal, yes. They will say that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is uh, the sin of unbelief. But again, to, to Sam's point, the, the text makes a distinction. Like verse 28 says, All sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So that's what makes me think that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this distinct sin for this time to take what God has done and ascribe that to the power of Satan. I think Jesus says... E- I'll forgive all these sins and, and you blaspheme, me, blaspheme against me and I'll forgive you that, but you do this thing and um, that's unpardonable. And again, I have a hard time uh, saying for sure whether or not that's something for today or then, but I tend to think that it's a sin unique to that and, time.
1: And to give Satan credit for what Jesus is doing. It's pretty gross.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. All right, Sam, then we'll move on. It,
3: um, just... Seems kind of interesting that the the member of the Trinity we, we often consider like the lowest on the totem pole is also the one who has this like blasphemies against the Father, against Jesus. Those will be pardoned, yep. but the Holy Spirit is the you know it it it's kind of it's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> it kind of shows that we we don't give we don't pull together. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely highlights our, our misunderstandings. We should never try to order the, the persons of God like that, right? they are, I don't think, well, maybe we, we spoke briefly on the, the economic trinity and how the, the persons of God operate within the trinity, how the, the spirit uh, highlights the Son, brings glory to the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. That doesn't make them any less God or any less important. And yeah, this is a, a great text to highlight that point. Good. All right, well, let's jump back to the other half of this Mark sandwich, starting in verse 31, going back to uh, the focusing on the family of Christ. So Jesus teaching on the family. Starting in verse 31, Mark 3:31 It says, Then the mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they had sent word to him and called him. Hold on. I'm gonna go back and just refresh our memories because we got we were talking about the scribes and uh, their accusation of Jesus casting out demons by demons. But back in verse 20, um, we'll connect the dots here a little bit. 20 says that he came home. The crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And because of this, when his own people or his family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, and they were saying he has lost his senses. Then we took a little detour. Now jumping down to 31. Then his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mothers, and mother, uh, plural, singular. All right. So we see that he is um, he. We want to recognize that he's not denouncing or repudiating family, uh, these family relationships, but rather he's affirming a deeper, saving relationship with him. Um, so he obviously has a, a care and concern for his family as well. Uh, God has placed us within our, our worldly families. He's done so sovereignly. Um, and yet, these relationships aren't as important as our relationship with Christ. That is what is of utmost importance. That's what Jesus is trying to uh, communicate here that uh, familial relationships are temporal if they're not found in Christ which is kind of a, a crazy thought to think about because they are our, our closest worldly relationships with our family with people we go home to every night and we, we spend our days and our, our nights with them. We do life with our family. And yet if we don't all know Christ together, we're not going to be with them for eternity. It's just going to be for a glimpse. If your, your parents, or your grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever, they don't know Christ, those relationships, as tight-knit as they might be in this world, they're simply temporal relationships. And that's why Jesus asked, well, who are my my brother? Who are, who are my mother and my brothers? Um, and at this point, maybe they were starting to think that he's a little bit crazy too, right? Um, along with the family, thinking, well, what do you mean, who are your mother and brothers? They're, they're right outside. You should know who they are. But that's not what Jesus was saying. And he wasn't trying to... Um, them or make them out to be less in any way. But he was, again, highlighting the fact that their relationship with him is of utmost importance. Um, Our relationships with Jesus supersede all others. Or maybe our singular relationship with Christ uh, supersedes all others. That is of utmost importance. What we do with Christ is more important than... uh, how good of a a wife or father or husband or whatever that you are. Those are important things, but of utmost importance is our relationship with Christ. Uh, Remember, it's in Matthew 10 where Jesus says, don't suppose that I came to bring peace. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword and to divide a house against itself, a mother against her daughter and a a father against his son and a mother-in-law against a a daughter-in-law. And he's just painting a real clear picture that if you think that everything is going to be nice and life is going to be peachy after coming to Christ, you've, you've got something else coming. Because Christ came to, to bring a sword. He came to bring division. And uh, people don't always embrace those who embrace Christ. We see that especially here in uh, LDS culture. that. Uh, maybe a little bit less now than in past generations, but there's a a tendency to kind of shun people who leave the the LDS faith. Well, you want to embrace Christ. Okay, well, that's good, but I'm going to uh, disavow you. Or amongst Jehovah's Witnesses, that's a a big thing, that people will actually be cast out of the family if they uh, enter into, uh, they actually become a, a witness and then they leave, they're disavowed. And it's not even just within those, those cultic groups, even though that's easiest to recognize. Uh, within worldly families too, I think there's a tendency to shun those who love Christ and who um, really speak out for Christ. I remember maybe a couple years ago now, Britt went to uh, some family game night, some party night thing. And uh, a couple hours in, maybe an hour in, she ended up calling me and she was out in the car and just said, yeah, well, I'm, I'm just sitting in the car they're playing just games that i can't play in, in good conscience as a christian that's not something that i can partake in so i'm just just calling you and i was proud of her and i was thankful of her and i'm sure that her family weren't really accepting that Well, why? what's she doing why is she out in the car you know but um it's there's there's a different level having this this worldly family and then Uh, The relationship that we have with Christ and the resulting relationship that we have with the bride of Christ because of our relationship with Christ. Uh, I think that's what Jesus is kind of drawing out and highlighting here. Um, We see this in Luke 11. Um, Actually, I have this slide here first. It says it is, oh, just asking uh, for us to consider if our identity is primarily rooted in Christ or if it's rather rooted in family or in work or some other temporal relationship, these are good things for us to consider, to realize that our relationships that we have with those who aren't in Christ are indeed temporal. Uh, Luke 11, 28 says that while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That is what's of utmost importance. What we do with the Word of God. Not our familial relationship. Uh, Even the the mother of Christ, Mary. uh, Most blessed among all women, right? Uh, Jesus says, no, all the contrary. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. That's a good verse for for Catholics, by the way. Uh,
2: I bet they don't teach
0: it much. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) Augustine said... I like this quote. He said, Mary is more blessed in receiving the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. Her nearness as a mother would have been little help for her salvation if she had not borne Christ in her heart in a more blessed manner than in the flesh. So what we do with Christ is of greater importance than our earthly relationships. Even those who were related by blood to Jesus, they weren't saved by some sort of osmosis or by that familial relationship to Christ. They needed to come to an end of themselves. They needed to be born again and uh, put their faith and trust in Christ for them to be saved. Once again, we are over time and ending quickly. I'm sorry. But uh, for next week, read through Mark 4, verses 1 through 20, first half of Mark 4. And I want you to consider how many of the, the four soils there represent believers or those who are in Christ and to ask yourselves why it is that you say that and then to be ready to let the text challenge any presuppositions that you might have Um, we'll look at that next week and consider the the parable of the the sower and the soilist so let's pray and don't forget I have these articles up here on carnal Christianity God we thank you for who you are we thank you for the fact that you have saved us despite the fact that we are sinners of despite the fact that we have blasphemed against You. God, what great forgiveness we have in You. Help us to, to realize the, the true blessing of that, to share that blessing with others, and to, to praise You and to worship You for the fact that You are God and You have saved us, uh, that You are the, the suffering servant who came to suffer even though You don't deserve that. God, we, uh, we do pray for our family members, for those who we're close to on this world who don't know You, that we would be close to them in Christ that they would come to know You, that You would draw them to Yourself. And God, we pray that You would continue to prepare our hearts for worship and that we would lift up Your name this morning uh, with our, our spiritual family around us. God, we love You and praise You. Amen.